Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Let's Watch 2 podcast, a podcast with aspirations of discovering the ultimate double feature. My name is Sam, I'm your host and joining me today is a very special guest indeed. I'm extremely excited to introduce Matt Davies of the band Funeral for a Friend. Big welcome to Matt. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me on. You, you're most welcome. Uh, yeah, so how this came about is um we uh, are both on social media and we like to post about the films that we collect and watch and things like that on our social media channels uh, amongst other things but um i saw that you were a big film collector and i was also a fan of your band and so i thought i'd just reach out and and see if you wanted to maybe do something a little different to what you may normally do and just have a have a chat about a couple of films and um, I posed the question to talk about the two films that we're going to be talking about, and it turns out that one of them is probably your favourite film of all time, possibly. And yeah, and now we're here. We have been pushing this back a little bit, we just do due to scheduling issues and things like that. So we're finally here. And before we went on uh, on air recording this, it took us about forty minutes to actually hear each other talk. So that was fun uh, technology for you these days. But yeah, so it's very prime, isn't it? Really. I mean... <laughs> It's typical. You know, these kind of things always tend to happen to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The podcast has been on like a six month hiatus, basically, because I'm navigating parenthood for the first time. Uh, so if any listeners are out there wondering why there hasn't been any new uh, episodes recently, that's that's basically the reason. Uh, it's just uh, time constraints, really. But uh, hopefully moving forward, uh, there should be an episode a month uh, lined up to satisfy any listeners double feature cravings. So, although Matt is known for being the vocalist uh, for Funeral for a Friend, you might uh, think we would be discussing music, which is something, if I had the time, I would love to do a whole other podcast for. But uh, no, today we're going to be talking about uh, one of Matt's other passions and interests, which is film. And what I believe, as uh, I said earlier, is one of Matt's uh, all-time favourite films and pairing it with uh, arguably one of the greatest films of the 1970s. So we're going to be talking about Paris, Texas from 1984, directed by Vim Vendors and Taxi Driver from 1976, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, yeah. And so before we dive into that, as per Let's Watch 2 custom, just have a brief co co sort of conversation about what we've been watching or what we've been buying recently. As I know, Matt, you're also into like physical media forever you like to collect things and uh support like the indie labels like arrow vinegar syndrome etc like that who do fantastic like restoration work and preserving cinema uh cinema so yeah what you what have you been watching what have you been buying recently um well i mean i just had a bunch of stuff in from um i i, I partook in my very first vinegar syndrome um halfway to black friday kind of sale um mm -hmm. so i kind of just had a bunch of stuff in from them which has been really cool because they're not really a label that i was massively familiar with um sure. you know a couple, a couple of titles here and there but um for some reason um i think i just kind of wanted to see what 
else they kind of had that might pique my interest because I'm I, I kind of like a lot of different kind of stuff when it comes to movies. Um, so as much as I like high highbrow kind of art house cinema, I also like um, B C D grade kind of uh, genre Z, um, films, Z, Z grade um, <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. Just because I mean, not every day you want to kind of watch a black and white uh, foreign movie and, and read subtitles, is it really? Um, it's true. Not every yep. day. Um, but yeah, so I mean, a, a, you know. A, a, big bunch of that stuff came in recently um and i just got around for the first time which is which kind of shocked a lot of people on on my twitter when i admitted that i have only just recently watched the first jaws film <laughs> um you've only just watched the first jaws film yeah um last week i um for some reason i've seen two and i i know i've seen three and i might have even seen four but for wow. some reason i didn't i've never i realized i've never seen the first you know the classic the spielberg yeah, yeah and um i think it has a lot to do with my inherent phobia of of the ocean uh in general i think i saw t- <laughs> i think i saw two first as a kid and that terrified me enough yeah to really kind of try to avoid watching any film with a with a man-eating shark in it um because i i i overactive imagination as a kid i believed that that shark was going to come through my living room floor and eat the shit out of me but um yeah so i mean i i i picked up the uh, the 4k um 4k disc of it um a couple of weeks back and got around to watching it last weekend and yes i uh, i can safely say to those of you who also haven't yet seen yours it's a fantastic fantastic movie and um yeah so it shocked a lot of people kind of kind of i think i lost maybe lost a little bit of cred um, with that we, one. All, but, we all have spots in our in our film watching knowledge and experience like all all people who regard themselves as cine, as cinephiles have have gaps in their knowledge there's plenty uh, of so many, classics so many. Not i'm seen. not ashamed i'm not ashamed yeah. to say there's probably a ton out there that i've i've yet to even pick off the shelf and, and find the time to watch but um yeah between between arrow and um indicator and kino lorba like all the important and stuff um which if, if you have the benefit of a multi-region player um yep. the world of physical media is is very strong when it comes to being a film fan so yeah yeah you know it's 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 a cool thing i, I like the library kind of thing so i like collecting yeah me, me too i think a lot of the listeners out there are in a similar similar boat to us so yeah, yeah. i picked up a, a large uh um sort of a haul you could say from the vinegar syndrome sale as well um i don't think my partner's going to listen to this so she she won't know but i picked up <laughs> about 20 i picked up about 25 titles from that sale um because i'll only buy from them during the halfway or the black friday sale so i just buy from them twice a year basically and yeah. then just pick up all the titles that I want. And yeah, um, they just do absolutely superb work, like restoring films that no one else will basically like put the time and effort into doing so. Not everything that they, they, they release is like stellar in terms of like the quality of the film. But what you can't deny is the quality of the care they put into the actual restoration and the packaging and mm. and if you like a good slip cover on your collector's edition blu-rays then the vinegar syndrome is the place to go yeah um for sure 
I mean, have you picked up any of the um, the partner label stuff? Because that really, really interested me. Um, that's I think that's what kind of brought me back to the website initially was the um, was the Fun City Editions kind of stuff that they. Yeah, well, I, I do. I have um, Alphabet City and Jeremy from Fun City, um, and then I just have one title from the American genre film. Uh, uh, archive that's what agfa yeah. stands for i think yeah um, and i've got the like the um the horror trailer show thing which is a lot of fun if you haven't got yeah. that one already it's just like a couple of hours of just like z movie a horror <laughs> movie trailers and it's just because some of the tra- some of the trailers they're really entertaining but you know that you probably wouldn't watch the film because it's not going to be that it's... entertaining but just to see a snapshot of of those films and stuff it's just fascinating yeah, I mean, it's always cool to find a label like that who kind of are not afraid of uh, putting out stuff that's just so niche that um, it has a very select audience and that audience is going to buy it up. I mean, I even appreciate the fact that they, they do a lot in restoring um, uh, classic um, adult movies as well. I mean, that's something you don't see very often of a lot of um, of labels kind of wanting to restore and look at you know other aspects of cinema which you wouldn't normally kind of expect to see uh, exactly that so i mean i'm not saying i mean you know if if, if anybody out there is is likes their classic american hardcore porn then <laughs> by all means <laughs> Go to um, yeah i mean it's i i you know kudos i mean it's it's definitely presenting a lot of stuff that you know most ardent film lovers would kind of pass over and they present it in a way which gives it which gives it the merit which sometimes i think um has, has been unfairly stripped away from certain aspects of, of cinema and filmmaking so yeah it's cool definitely uh yeah so before we we move on to talking about our first film i just wanted to mention one thing that i've been watching well yep. one thing that i watched recently um and i just want to keep talking about this film to anyone who will listen and i don't know if you've seen this film before but it's uh from 1999 it's called beau travai directed by claire denis have you seen this ah no no do you know what it's on my list of things i do love claire denis a lot and yeah. and it's quite interesting you brought that up because it it will tie in very nicely to one of the films that we're uh, that we're, yeah. we're going to talk about but um yeah she's such a fantastic um filmmaker and she is I mean, and, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Bo I is, like, every once in a while, like, this, I love so much, so much film, so many different genres and things like that, but every so often, it probably happens several times, several times, a handful of times a year, where there's there's a film I watch, whether it's a new release or something that I'm discovering that's been out for years, that really just captures me, and, like, I think about it, like on a daily basis for a long time after I watch it. And Beau is one of those films for me. It's like images from that film as like keep pl- replaying in my mind. It's a very, it's a very slow burn. The basic plot is about as a group of um, sort of uh, men that are in the French foreign legion. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very poetic and it's uh, a lot of it is about jealousy and a colonialism which claire denis sort mm. of uh, tackles in quite a few of her films because yeah because yeah, yeah. yeah have you seen um white material or anything yep. like that yeah, yeah i have so that on she, the shelf behind me <laughs> yeah so she um she likes she tends to deal with that in a lot of her films and uh yeah Bo is no no uh, exception in that regard but 
it yeah it's just absolutely incredible it uses a fantastic use of music like at the time from 1999 like contemporary pop music and also sort of classical operatic music as well and it's just one of the most beautifully photographed films i've ever seen and it's one of those films when i watched it a couple of days later i had to watch it again uh, because i was so it is amazing um and i just wanted to talk about that briefly because no by all means i just i just just wanted people to anyone who's listening if they haven't seen it there's a criterion sale going on right now and by the time this podcast is is published or out there for people to listen to it was the the barnes and noble sale in america will still be in full swing (laughs) so uh, if anybody is contemplating picking up Bojo Vibe by Claire Denis um, I'd highly recommend getting that Criterion disc it has a fantastic uh, conversation between Claire Denis and um, oh my god who's the guy who directed Moonlight Um, I'm embarrassing myself now but the guy who directed Moonlight Moonlight and um, if Bill Street could talk that guy Ah, um, you know who I'm on about I do know who you're on about, but I can't pull the name out of my head either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we got two of us are going to be seeing the uh, Barry, Barry Jenkins. Barry, Barry Jenkins. Jenkins, that's it. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Exactly. So, so uh, the last yes. um, and yeah, has a really great conversation between them two. And yeah, it's just fascinating. So yes. oh, one last thing. I also picked up, not fil- it's film related, but not a film, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novel by Quentin Tarantino. Oh. You know what? I've seen that um, floating around, and I've been listening to a lot of the um, Pure Cinema podcasts um, recently. And his kind of guest slot on on that has really, yeah. um, really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of films that I would not have um, even considered checking out. So, quick um, Tarantino has been at the forefront of my mind the last couple of weeks, and. I did notice I've seen some posts on social media that the book was coming out and, and stuff. So I've, yeah, it's on my list of things to eventually track down and get myself uh, acquainted with. Yeah, I've, I've read the first few chapters and I'm saving it for uh, uh, an upcoming trip I'm having away. Oh, cool. So that'll be my reading. Cool. Right. So um, on the podcast, we like to talk about the film that was released first sort of chronologically so taxi driver came out in 1976 so we'll be talking about that first right on. so a br- right on so a brief <laughs> um a brief synopsis as you will of uh, what taxi driver is about if you haven't seen it i mean why are you listening to the podcast right now if you've not seen the films we're going to be discussing but i'm glad you're here either way uh, a mentally unstable veteran works as, as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City, where the perceived decadence and sleaze fuels his urge for violent action by attempting to liberate a presidential campaign worker and an underage prostitute. So the film is uh, written by Paul Schrader, who has an, an, a stacked uh, sort of... Uh, writing credits as well as directing credits so he also worked with martin scorsese on raging bull the last temptation of christ bringing out the dead which are all incredible and he directed one of my very favorite films mishima a life in four chapters um he also directed american gigolo and most recently first reformed uh so just the combination of martin scorsese and paul schrader is just is just uh just amazing um, so, Matt, when was the first yeah. time that you watched Taxi Driver and what did you think of it? Um, I kind of I had this conversation with my wife the other day. Um, I think I was probably in my late teens um, when I first 
came across the film. I think I, you know, I'd heard about it, but I think it's was when I kind of started to um, study A level film in college on the side because I went to art school and I did film on the side. And it was one of those films that was swimming around that you just kind of have to check out. And I remember, I think maybe because of the age I was at the time, finding it very, a very much a difficult watch. Um, I think I just wasn't prepared for just the pace of it, the intensity. And I remember not really coming away from it, thinking that I liked it too much. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm, Has your opinion changed? <laughs> yes. I mean, um, I mean, and, and this is the crazy thing. It, it left such a lasting kind of impression on me at that point that I, it took me until now to properly, I mean, uh, to revisit it fully, sitting down, paying attention to it, isolated, absorbing the film um, for, for its, you know, just, just slightly under two hour runtime. And it was just a completely different experience. I think I'm putting that down to the distance between the age that I was yeah. uh, and the, and also the films that I've, um, that I've digested um, since that point. Um, and it did leave me with a different idea of the film. It, it, uh, it allowed me to appreciate it a bit more, uh, the nuances, especially with the writing, because when I first discovered Taxi Driver, I wasn't familiar with Paul Schrader. Um, I was very loosely familiar with Scorsese. I mean, the name was quite, was there before pretty much I'd, I'd seen quite a lot of, uh, of the films, which I have since then. Um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, coming at it with the lack of experience that I did, it didn't, um, and I think with the films that I was watching then that I was kind of getting into then it, it, it I think the, um, the period kind of alienated me a little bit. Um, sure. but now, I mean, and this was in like the, you know, the, the late nineties. So, but, but now, I mean, I think with the weight of, of life <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and everything else. Yeah. I kind of, yeah, I, I have, uh, I have a lot more respect for the film. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I, I'm, I'm in a similar sort of boat. I think like when I really started getting into film, like I only, I've only just started studying film now. I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties, but I, um, I think I saw this probably when I was about 15 or 16 and there there is something to say about life experience and also uh, your experience in watching other other films and uh from the same director and just from other directors and stuff uh, that determines how you appreciate something and sort of life experience and things like that so when i first watched this i i would say the similar thing where i thought it was quite slow paced and not a lot was happening until like the 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 climactic scene at the end which is extremely violent um but now I, i've seen it several times since since then and um i think this film gets better on every viewing i find something new in it every time i watch it there's so mm -hmm. many as you said there's so many nuances as particularly in um de niro's performance and paul schrader's writing is fantastic i mean i'm not sure if you're aware of this but paul the the actual uh, script that paul schrader wrote was based on his actual experiences in life so he i, I can kind of see i mean from see from 
seeing um, a few other Schrader films and mm-hmm. kind of looking at the, you know, his interviews and stuff and seeing the way he is as a person, you can kind of tell now. I mean, looking back at it now, you can kind of see that there's um, how, how much he's, you know, leveraged his own kind of personal kind of influence of his own, like you said, his own life into that kind of, into the writing. Definitely, because he had, without going into too much detail, he had some sort of like break, like uh, mental breakdown, and he didn't really have any friends. He was very lonely, and he worked as like a delivery driver for like a take, like a like a restaurant or something like that. And he was working long mm-hmm. hours by himself, delivering food to people, which is sort of similar to what a taxi driver does. Like they pick up people, drop them off places. And um, and that's basically where the script was born. And uh, but instead of it being because he was in L.A. at the time, transported it to New York City, mm. which has much more of a grimy, gritty feel, particularly in the 70s, um, where it was just like a breeding pool for anything and everything. And yeah, so that that's that's where the, the whole premise of the film was born, which I, I think is really interesting. Yeah, man. And yeah. And the. Um, yeah, let's just have a let's just have a, a little bit of a look at Travis as a character in general. Like he he's introduced to us as like someone who's looking for work. He wants to work long hours, and possibly as a distraction from the the, the nothingness that is his life. Like he's very he's very distanced from his family, as we find out later in the film, as he's writing like them a letter. And he doesn't want to see them that they his parents doesn't know where he lives and he doesn't visit them very often he doesn't appear to have any friends and then when he does like uh sort of see that like flower that is betsy uh in this sort of like breeding pool of just filth that is new york city he he's you can sort of see he's a very unhinged individual that has possibly got some like um issues um possibly related to his military history you could he was in the marines i believe and when he's working out in a scene he has like a huge scar on his back which is possibly from like an injury in in combat or something like that um so yeah possibly like the vietnam war or something like that it's never explicitly told to us what what where he fought or anything like that at least i can't remember um no it's very vague isn't it yeah i mean yeah leaves a lot to the viewer to sort of fill in the blanks about his history and where where he's been and what's caused him to be the way he is. And, um, yeah, speaking of, (laughs) speaking of like what we were talking about with the vinegar syndrome things, he's, he likes to attend X rated films, um, in in the theater. I mean, what I really found interesting about that aspect in the movie is how it's portrayed. It's, it's kind of, there's a level of innocence about it. I mean, definitely. Yeah. Because he doesn't see anything um, specifically problematic with the material, like, you know, taking Betsy to, to see an X-rated movie on a date um, is, is kind of, for him, totally, I mean, and that plays massively into, I think, a deep-rooted, in, awkward innocence about Travis as well. There, there is um, an underlying, almost childlike level of innocence to his perception of social interaction it's very much it's very much uh, a definitive black and white kind of thing you know what i mean there's no kind of you know gray area or nuance it's very awkward it's very much like um 
like a kid asking you questions every every five minutes you know and doesn't see that it doesn't see that difficulty there um and it could you know that could be down to a lot of things which aren't um which are kind of hinted at maybe due to like you said his military history um could we be looking at you know mental illness ptsd kind of thing um yeah. working its way up here and i think the way the film handles that is in, and this is what made it you know jumped out at me on watching it this time was just how succinctly pure that that is and how difficult it is for us as viewers to watch as well as the interactions he has with the the other characters you know you kind of see it from the the norms that we have and this very kind of challenged individual doesn't see the the issues that he has when it comes to social interaction very very cool yeah, it's 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 very well done. I always found there's a really interesting contrast between him being in the theatre, like he goes to watch like the porno, and but he goes and he like he buys like a bag of popcorn <laughs> and he buys like a he wants like juju beans, but they don't have any, so he gets like a yeah. chocolate bar or something like that, and then he sits down and he he just seems really uninterested he's just sort of like going there just going there through the motions he doesn't seem very stimulated by what he's seeing but i mean then he says that in... i mean he says i don't know about you know i don't know about movies you know what i mean it's just yeah, exactly, it's just such yeah. a complete blank for him and then so cool. when he's uh and in contrast to when he's like first sees um betsy play fantastically played by sybil shepherd she uh he's sat in his taxi like drinking a drink he's got like a straw it's probably like a coke or something and he's yeah. literally observing her like like he's in a drive-through th movie theater like as if she's like an like a movie like uh, attraction like he's sat on the side of the road but the, what he's seeing in in sybil in yeah. betsy sorry is is like so stimulating to him like he's absolutely captured by it like as opposed to like the x-rated film that he's just been to in a previous scene which doesn't really seem to be doing much for him like he's i mean yeah, the way he so... describes it i mean the voiceover i mean it's quite a, yeah. a big big part of the narrative the way his descriptive qualities change when he talks about her you know seeing her for the first time um it, it also plays very heavily into that kind of you know that kind of that being immersed in her in a way which is like watching a movie like watching a favorite movie like a comfort blanket kind of thing you know just that discovery and yeah i thought that was really well kind of well balanced as a whole on, on you know on those moments yeah and then as the film sort of progresses uh travis's mental state begins to deteriorate i mean we can sort of tell that he's struggling in some in some way but it's not until like he starts getting various different um uh, patrons in in his capsi uh, his capsi tag <laughs> his uh taxi <laughs> cab that was a, yeah. that was, i'll leave i'll leave that one in for free for the listeners so um um but yeah he gets like a uh martin scorsese is in the film and he's playing um sort of like a man who's like followed his wife to an apartment and she's having an affair and he's basically describing that he's going to kill her and and her and her partner which happens to be black so there's uh, sort of like uh, like the racism undertone of like New York City at the time, and then there's um, uh, who else? Obviously, um, Jodie Foster playing Iris. It gets mm -hmm. into the 
the the cab and she's pulled away by uh Harvey Cartel's character. I can't remember there's other things that happen. He shoots someone in a in a store because he's robbing the place. Um, there there, are, there are elements I mean of I mean throughout the film, I mean there are moments where the camera, you know, where Travis is outside um somewhere where he's talking to the fellow cab drivers or he's walked outside and he's passed a group of young uh, black youths walking past him and the camera lingers and moves like, you know, and cuts between, you know, one of these kids looking back at Travis, Travis looking at this, one of the kids and stuff kind of yeah. alluding to this kind of underlying, like, you know, tension of, of, of racism, of this big, this bigotry that kind of is permeating, um, not just his kind of maybe mindset, but, you know, some of the people that he is, interacting with as well and it's such a I mean something that I didn't really notice on first watch um how how heavily that plays into into its you know sex and race pretty yeah. much as a, a strong balances through through this movie yeah I think the um we, we'll talk about a little about this when we talk about Paris Texas but the the uh the way that the sex industry is utilized as part of the plot or or as, i'm not really sure how to describe it but obviously iris is a, a prostitute it's mm -hmm. very disturbing because she's only 12 years old and it's it's very uncomfortable um to watch her like try and you know earn money doing what she does yeah. and um but it's really interesting to see um how iris is like she's a walking contradiction because she is a child and there's and like confident. A there's a confidence there, which is yeah and that's probably due to the things she's seen and, and and done um but also yeah she is very naive in some respects I and mean, there's a fantastic scene in which iris and um travis are having like breakfast together and she's like wearing these really silly like sunglasses and um and she's like making putting jam on toast but then she like pours sachets of sugar all over her toast while she's like mm -hmm. telling travis like how wise she is and what she knows about things and it's just like you can see in her like mannerisms and her her, her literal actions of like eating breakfast <laughs> at this diner sort of thing that she really is still a child yeah. and um yeah it's fantastically played by jodie foster at such a young age i 12. mean it's it, it, that that scene, I think, is probably one of the highlights of the of the movie for me. It, it, I mean, it really does reflect. I think for a, for a moment, the the motivation, the the that that kind of innocence, going back to the innocence aspect of Travis' character as well. It really the way that he can articulate and converse with with Iris on a level which isn't demeaning, which isn't like talking down technically to to her. But just yeah. pulling pulling out the information, the the just the way he sees what she's doing and what he is, and how he, she thinks he's a contradiction as well as how she, much she is of a contradiction with her her age and what it is that she's doing, her experience that she's already had at this at this age. It's it's such an intensely um, strong counterpoint to the first introduction to Iris, um, you know, where you feel so kind of dismayed and and, and and horrified that this young girl is out there hooking on the streets of new york city and and yet in a in in the space of a few scenes you've got something which kind of brings a, a completely different dynamic to play almost like a, a brother and sister kind of almost yeah. wanting to protect 
a protective kind of guardian angel kind of thing, which obviously leads very much into the the motivation, some of the motivation later on in the film. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so as uh, Travis slowly deteriorates uh, mentally, uh, there's a there's a fantastic shot, which is probably in terms of like just framing and uh, and the way it's put together is one of my favourites in the film. It's at the um, the political uh, sort of rally or um, speech where Palantine is and Travis is where we first see Travis in his like mohawk, like very iconic um, sort yeah. of haircut and the the shot starts with the camera's like in in a close-up sort of mid shot and it's like neck down so all you see is like his neck down and it's sort of and then eventually it pans up so you can like it reveals like he's had this idea to sort of give himself a mohawk but i thought that was very like uh signifying of him literally losing his mind like when you're introduced to him in that scene his head isn't in the shot literally to say he's lost his mind sort of thing. And I thought that was a really clever, like not, maybe not so subtle, but it's like, it just signals like this guy is now unhinged and anything can happen. And it almost does. Cause he, he only well, gets spooked at the last minute before he actually kills, kills the, uh, the um, political candidate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, I mean, that is a very cool way of introducing a, a complete shift in the character that we've, I mean, I mean, the, at least the final point in his transformation, so to speak. You know, I mean, we've seen him gradually kind of soak the influence of the city, the his kind of very unquieted mind, kind of gradually becoming more aggressive, more out of out of whack, um, really distancing himself from the the kind of the character that we see right at the very start, and. You have this transformation there, and then the camera pans. You've got the haircut. You've got the iconic imagery from the film of this guy who's who's broken that 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 line now. Who is going to commit some? He's going to go fully through with what he's been talking about the, the entirety of the film in monologue, yeah. in writing. Is this a letter he's writing? Are these is is this a diary? You know, these are his, you know, thought processes and you've got that switch. And it is such, uh, from that point, see, from that point for me, the movie changes from uh, into being quite a, quite a, uh, the, the pace changes at that point. You've got less, yeah, kind become... of, so, no, you've got less character, you've got less kind of, the interactions change, it is more of the consequence now. And... Yeah, it's it's more um, <clears throat> frantic because obviously uh, Travis wanted to he wanted to like um, kill someone, and then he at the last minute he's spooked and he doesn't go through with it, and then he basically needs to use that energy elsewhere. So then he obviously goes to um, sports, uh, like uh, I don't know what to call it, d- brothel, slash brothel, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah and then and then he and then travis goes on his um killing spree um and yeah it's it's just uh, horrific it's one of those weird situations where it's like it's the acts that he perform the acts that he carries out are just they're they're wrong but oh, i don't know how to describe it it's very yeah. it's very strange like it's, it's like it's a misguided it's a misguided redemptive quality because that the, the the initial act he intended to engage in obviously is mm-hmm. um, you can't really see a, a definitive reason 
I mean, you, yeah. of why he would pursue, obviously, maybe the Betsy thing, the relationship thing, being uh, thrown to the side because of his social inadequacies and not really knowing why he's being kicked to the curb. Uh, why is that something he has to do there and then? Um, but then it, the focus changes then to, to Iris, somebody who he sees as somebody he has to protect then. Um, yep. And then it, it shifts completely and he just goes almost like, you know, Terminator. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, completely emotive. Yeah. That's why he's such a good anti-hero, I guess, and why he's such like an iconic figure in cinema travis bickle is because yeah he's, such he's a not really a hero i mean i mean yeah, he, exactly. isn't, he isn't he's not really the hero because if he hadn't been spooked he would have been yeah, responsible exactly. for a, an act which would have portrayed him as as the ultimate villain so yeah, yeah. interesting interesting dynamic and, and duality there of character motivation so question do you do you believe that Travis dies at the end of the film? Ooh. We, or do you think... <laughs> we get all metaphysical here and thinking that what yeah. we're seeing afterwards is... Yeah, I'm, sort of... I'd, like to see what, I'd like to see what you think about it first, but I, I have my thoughts on, on um, like the, 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 the scenes that take place after I, like the carnage yeah, has happened. I think I, think I know what you're going to... I think what you're alluding to, mm -hmm. I think I know exactly what you're, mm -hmm. you're talking about, because um, I don't think he is... I don't think he is, but I do think there is a particular scene where I think the way it's shot and the way the the way it's edited makes me believe that this is happening in his head. Right. Okay. Um, is the conversation where at the end of the film they're chatting a, a him and his cab driver friends who are a lot more comfortable now after the fact because he's like a little he's a minor celebrity. Yeah. Um, and they say, "Oh, you've got a fare," and then the, it, to the viewer, it looks like the person who he's picked up, who he's taken for a ride, is Betsy. Yeah. Whether or not that is actually the case, or whether or not in this is in Travis's head, this kind of replaying of the the you know the role, this almost like attempting to um, cleanse the relationship uh, factor in his head. That you know that you know that went wrong prior to the events um, is 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 real or not? I mean, it left me kind of scratching my head a little, wondering not whether or not that is a Scorsese plan trick to to kind of make you think. Well, did that really happen? Was it just somebody mm -hmm. else? Is is he viewing Betsy? Is it obviously some? Is there somebody in the cab? But it's not her. But this is the kind of interplay he's having in his head very kind of left me scratching my head i don't think he's dead though i don't think he's dead i think that okay. would be too much of a of a kind of downright dirty thing but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um i mean it wouldn't it's not as if that his death technically wouldn't be earned in a specific cinematic way given mm -hmm. the kind of character that he is but i think that's for me it's not the case i think he is still very much a troubled man and this conversation at the end is something that he's having with himself okay interesting so i where i can 
I'll agree and disagree with that because I'm tending towards more that he has died from his injuries because the injuries he he gets are quite severe. Like he gets shot a few times, he gets a shot in the neck, and I think it's just, I think it's twice, isn't it? One in one in the arm, one in the arm, and one yeah, and one and, and then one in one the, the neck. neck. Yeah, that's I right. Mean, and then yeah. it's just the way that the camera acts after that scene when the police walk in and there's that very iconic moment of him like uh like uh putting his fingers to his head acting a gun shooting himself and the blood the blood dripping from his fingers and stuff is just fantastic imagery um but the way the camera then sort of cranes up out from above him it's like a bird's eye view and then it sort of just uh recounts all of the carnage that basically happened in the prior scenes in the film but that to me the way that camera has been used and it captures everything is like a spirit leaving a body. Do you think that's a little too obvious though? I mean, I Mm. thought that at first I thought, okay, here we go. We've got a nice, you know, look back at the scene of the crime, maybe from, you know, his own kind of whatever you want to call it, soul flying off into the netherworld kind of vibe. Yeah. Maybe maybe Um, it is too, maybe it is too obvious, but that that's just what rings more true to me i don't know why that's why film's fantastic it's so interpretive and stuff so um and have you seen um this is completely like an aside but have you seen um enter the void by gaspar noe i haven't no 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 so um there's a very similar concept in that film the whole it's not spoiling anything but the 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 whole film is basically an out-of-body experience of an individual who has been in an accident and it's sort of the way that the and Gaspar Noé is a very big fan of Taxi Driver, it's one of his favorite films, and I can see him interpreting that scene as being Travis has like left his body and he's just like sort of it sounds really corny or tacky now, but it's like soaring <laughs> away and d- 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 like ascending into something because he's not he should he's like he won't be going to heaven if that's the case because of his, no, his sins I mean, basically. I, I, think, <laughs> I think I think there's I think there's a level of interpretation in that yeah. in in that part of the film where. Um, yes, it presents you with a lot of things which could lead you to believe and understand that, you know, post um, the incident, he has recovered. He has become the, the way that the media sensationalized um, the events. I mean, which plays also into aspects of the the problems inherent in the that he sees inherent in the. It, through, with New York in the film, the way the media also plays a part in sensationalizing, uh, you know, damning kind of, you know, really presenting news as as something to get really hyped and pumped up about. Um, yeah. You know, very much feeds into that. But um, I think you've got, for me, you've got way too many things. You've got the, the, the way it lingers on the certain things, the clippings, the newspaper clippings, the letter from Iris's parents, a bit too maybe a bit too convenient but it works for me <laughs> um sure. um and it's just the general kind of the thing i mean the one thing that, like i said the one thing that i wasn't sure about is the actual conversation this betsy coming back to him almost yeah, like, a, it, like an olive branch kind of thing you know what i mean yeah, um, you it's know, too not... dreamy fantasy for me to, for it yeah, to the, have been the... reality whereas i yeah. can see your interpretation is more it's in his mind or he's it's yeah it's it's like it's not happening I... it's in his head or he's miss he's miss seeing things because he's not quite himself but for me yeah. that was more like a wish wish fulfillment sort of thing at like 
as he's di- yeah. maybe as he's dying maybe he's not actually dead but maybe he's like in the hospital or something and May- just, maybe like, i mean i think the way or something like that i think the way the dialogue works in that thing is mm. just there's no real the camera never really settles on anything long enough to give you a sense that an actual conversation between yeah. two people is taking place you've got lingering you've got the the, the wing mirror or the rear view mirror um look uh for for betsy and then you've got travis being quite nonchalant not you know real casual real just yeah. real indifferent not indifferent playful weirdly playful um exactly considering everything that's happened between them yeah i mean it makes you wonder is this a, a different kind of travis now after you know this after he went through with something that you know maybe he wasn't going to go. I mean, there's so many ifs and buts in, in that aspect of the film of, mm-hmm. you know, what he would follow through on, what he wouldn't follow through on. But, you know, generally speaking, I think that end is just gorgeous. Yeah. For a film that's so nihilistic, so, exactly, that is exactly. so uh, aggressively, um, not, I mean, the, it deals with so many nasty, you know, dark um, aspects of human nature that. The, the light the light moments that are there really shine through really i mean they really shine through to me on this um on this viewing as well it's just i mean there are things which i really didn't pick up on on first watch when i was 18 that now i was i was saying that the conversation that travis has when he goes out for a coffee and pie with betsy the questions yeah. the interaction is so oh so difficult to watch not because yeah. of how you know, violent the movie is, but just for how awkward a character Travis is and how wonderful an actor De Niro is playing that particular, those words, those lines in that moment and how effortless Sybil Shepherd is in rolling off that, giving an almost massively, just totally immersed in this strange, in the strangeness of this, of this guy. And then you've got the play at the end, bookends that beautifully for me. It's fantastic. So, um, we'll be talking about music in uh, the in both of these films, and obviously, as a musician, I'd be really interested to know what your thoughts are on the Bernard Herrmann score for Taxi yeah. Driver, or oh, the jazzy, the jazzy yeah. sexual pounding yeah. of New York City. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, what do you th- what do you think to it? And I mean, it's interesting because when you um, when you kind of told me that we were good, these were the films that we were going to be kind of looking at and you kind of reference this question mm-hmm. and you kind of mention a man out of time, but as a, as a, I, for me, the, the time, like the mid seventies, that kind of aspect of that jazzy kind of like sensual kind of undertone kind of works very well for me in describing through music the the pulse of new york city at the time the kind of pulse that it had um obviously the imagery that we're getting is a very rain-soaked wet kind of almost like a humid um dank dark just neon semi-neon lit bright like you know street like because it's pretty much mostly at night we're viewing new york city through travis's eyes um and it just kind of gives it that kind of sensuality and a weird kind of sensuality because of obviously the references to adult movies and the sexuality of New York City and the story itself inherent 
through, you know, through the film. And I think, it, I mean, I'm not really, I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, Herman's scores for his more, um, his, his, his Hitchcock period and, and other yeah. kind of films, which are far more classical, far more, um, you know, trad- traditional kind of, of that era kind of soundtrack kind of elements. And this really is, um, um, it seems like a man working with something, working with imagery, working with uh, musicality that is fresh and engaging and, and a different kind of concept because it's such a, like the seediness is inherent, I think, in the music. Yeah, the throbs, sure. the push, yeah. the pushes, the pulls. I think it works so well in terms of underscoring the the, the tension and the general heightening of events that are that are working through the movie. Yeah, I absolutely love this score. I have the um, the Waxworks um, release the on vinyl. vinyl. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It sounds so great, and it's got all the little cues and stuff on the soundtrack, and it's just it's just superb. Um, yeah, Herman had such a story career as you said he was with he did a lot of collaborations with hitchcock like most notably things like psycho and vertigo but he started his career by scoring citizen kane which is Ooh. like he basically i think he did one film after taxi driver but he died um before taxi driver was released i believe so he basically started his career with citizen kane and ended it with with taxi driver which is quite like a, a book bookends for his career but yeah, um, I absolutely love the score and I'm sure we'll have something to say about the score for Paris, Texas as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a few, just a little bit of um, trivia before we move on to Paris, Texas. So um, De Niro actually worked 15 hour days in a taxi for a month to prepare himself for the role, which I thought was really interesting and very method for, for De Niro. He's yeah, a very I method mean, actor. He, he, is, he, is, he is the method. That's, I mean, when yeah. you think of method acting, you think of De Niro. Yeah. And uh, yeah, obviously, probably anyone listening to this already knows that the, like the you talking to me scene it was completely ad libbed and not in the script at all. It was just Scorsese got put a camera on him and just like let De Niro just go with it and just and it's just such an unsettling scene and it was all made up on the spot by De Niro himself, which I think is just a testament to his uh, his feel and uh, just knowing a character and just his acting prowess, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's it's such a beautiful. I mean, like like that character is 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 iconic for a reason, and it is down to just how strongly you know Bobby De Niro inhabits that mindset. Scarily so, scarily so. You can't, you know, it's it's terrifying to kind of to think. Cool. Right then, shall we move on to Paris, Texas? Yes, please. Oh, I knew you'd be excited about this one. <laughs> so, uh, Paris, Texas, uh, from 1984, directed by Vim Vendors, uh, screenplay by Sam Shepard. And uh, yeah, so um, a brief synopsis. A man wanders out of the desert after a four-year absence. His brother finds him, and together they return to LA to re- reunite the man with his young son. Soon after, he and the boy set out to locate the mother of the child, who left shortly after the man disappeared. So, Matt, when did you first watch Paris, Texas, and what did you think? Um, I first watched Paris, Texas around about the same period, probably in my late teens, early 20s. 
And it's a film that I've been mesmerized and have come back to so many times um, over the last uh, bunch of years. Um, purely because it's it's just one of those films that has become such like a, a comfort blanket for me um, to watch both um, both visually um, and and emotionally. It's it's it it really plays into a lot of things that I love about movies and a lot of quite a lot of things that I really find find interesting about um, you know move, um, um, cinema specifically American and European cinema in general and um and i genuinely genuinely think that um even though he's gained a lot of recognition over the last bunch of years i still think harry dean stanton is one of the most underrated character actors ever um yeah he's probably like my, my favorite actor of all time is philip seymour hoffman but i'd say a very very close second is harry dean stanton he has been in some so many of my favorite films either as a like a supporting character or even yeah. just like a bit a bit part he it's, is so he's got a really he's so versatile and he's just he just he's never i've never seen a bad performance from him and he he absolutely deserved to have like the spotlight on him in this film and he surely uh, delivers like his like his acting he, like skills I mean, he, in this film uh, uh, I mean, he owns. I mean, I mean, there are there are there are elements of this film which you know each actor owns their part in this film without yep. any conflict, without anybody trying to trounce anybody else. It's so beautiful. It's like a puzzle so beautifully put together that mm-hmm. for me, it's one of the most uh, one of the most iconic American films. Hmm. made by a non-american i have that in my i have that in my notes it's one of the best american films made by a (laughs) non-american yeah that that that, that i've ever seen and i've seen a lot i mean i've you know it's just one of those films that it's it's at the top spot for me for a lot of reasons and a lot of them are the emotional pull of the film as well the interactions is just so effortless um and it's really simple. It's such a simple, simple film. But the way it's told, the the way it's told through the camera and through the performances is so natural. It's an America that I, I longed to have seen when I first went to the US um, yeah. on tour before. It's that's one that's probably one of the films that ingrained in, in my consciousness what America, my the ideal of America visually is for me. In my head and i mean i love photography as well so i know vendors from his photographs as well and uh, every shot is just composed such perfect such perfection it's just for me this is the most perfect film ever full stop <laughs> yeah i can tell from the passion in your voice that you like this film quite a lot so um yeah i've um as it's like a, a film about america there's a lot of sort of um advertising and uh, logos of various different like um things that are associated with america in a lot of the shots there's a lot of coca-cola signs there's mcdonald's Mm -hmm. there's like kfc and various different like things like that that are in in the scenes like in in the background and things like that which i found quite interesting like obviously that wasn't there by accident like the shot would have been like uh chosen to be like that because of 
it including that as a commentary on American culture and things like that, um, which I found really interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you look, there's um, there's a lot of photographs that he published, the vendors published in, in, in volumes over the years where he's highlighted shots that he took scouting um, locations for Paris, Texas. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, those brands are, are, are classically in, in, intertwined with what we perceive as American. I mean, I'm pretty sure that everywhere that camera turned would have been something that would have signified for anybody who's in America or outside of America, this is America. I mean, specific, for us specifically, it would have been such a unique vision because we'd never see anything like that. Um, billboards, neon signs, you know, strip malls down the highways. Yeah. You've got signs everywhere. And America is like that. I yeah, mean, exactly. I was so, I've... so relieved to find that America <laughs> was very much like that. Um, and it's, it's just, even, it's even it's down to, um, yeah, it is. It's even down to like, um, I can't remember what his name is. Dean Stockwell's character. What, what's Travis's what? brother called? Walt, Walt, yeah, he yeah. works as like an advertising guy. He like literally puts the billboards. Big ass up. billboards. I mean, the oh, best exactly. billboards, not not just exactly. any billboards. <laughs> the best. You can see, I, I, I was, I've spent years looking at this film, and if you look at the way those bill, they're like hand painted billboards. Yeah, they're like literally in a way which I don't think anybody ever does these things anymore. I mean, it's such a time out of you know. Always blows my mind when I see that. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, Dean Stockwell was actually, I think, retired or like considering retiring from acting before he was cast in this role because he was basically getting no roles. Or I mean, really, he peaked. Like, he peaked in his yeah. in his youth. He was like working yeah. nonstop in the studio system from yeah. from like the fifth, you know, from the fifties in westerns and everything. You know, it was yeah. so yeah. And then his career sort of like had a resurgence and stuff. Obviously, he was in this, and then he had a, a quantum a, a, leap. A fan, yeah, quantum <laughs> leap. He had a fantastic role in uh, Blue Velvet. Um, oh, another one of my is, favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, or maybe we could talk about that one other time with the pairing it with something else. That'd be fantastic. Um, but um, yeah, and I think yeah, Dean Stockwell is just such a treasure as well. He's he's fantastic in in this film, as you said, that everyone earns their place. I have to say that uh hunter i think the kid is called hunter carson i think who plays hunter. yeah i think he's the son i think he's the son of l m kip carson the actual um the person who adapted the the, the story for oh right film. i did not know that so i learned something there but he his it has to be probably the best child acting i've ever seen it is so good like a <laughs> lot, lot of the time child, child acting can be very annoying or you can get taken yep. out of a, even when it's not terrible you're still taken out of the moment because the acting isn't very naturalistic or or something like that but the way that this kid acts in this film is just absolutely superb and yeah i'd probably say it's the best acting you almost forget, you almost, i think you almost forget that it is even a performance really yeah. i mean you just mm. fall so you just fall so much into what's going on that you just at some point you just kind of like there are moments where you just kind of think oh yeah this is actually scripted it's got to be scripted i mean exactly. at some point uh <laughs> to follow along but you can just tell by the way that the other actors specifically uh harry dean interacts with him in certain things when they're following the car um blah blah, blah. you know which car you know it's very much playful it's a playful interaction which gets the performance out with the kid very subtle very well done and i yeah. I'm, i think you wonder how much credit is between you know the actors and 
vendors, skillful, because he's worked with kids before in his other films, to get those kind of performances to become such, to become so natural, you almost you forget that they're actually a performance. Yeah, it's probably like, it's like the walkie-talkie scenes and stuff. Like the kid oh. was probably having such an amazing time just like playing with the walkie-talkie in the first place, let alone it like being I, like I a scripted scene. It's, it, it blows my mind every time I watch it, specifically the scene where he's regaling about the speed of light um, stuff oh, yeah. in the back of the car. It's just, I'm, I watch it and I'm just thinking, this is just, it fills me up with a, with a nice warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> so good. As, as so all the best good. films should. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the film has like a constant um, yeah, motif of, or like a theme of, of traveling, like even yeah. when the characters are stationary. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of scenes like, uh, like Walt lives near an airport. So there's constantly people coming and going. The sound like, as well. Yeah, for sure. You can hear it. Even when you can't see a plane, you can hear a plane. You know that people are going somewhere or doing something. They're, they might be escaping. They may be coming back or something like that. And mm. even just like in the, the heart-wrenching scene where Travis is recording uh, his, his message to, uh, to Hunter to say that he, he's, he's going to have to leave and he's in, the, in that hotel room. But in the background, all you can see is just the, the highway and just cars coming and going it's just really interestingly sort of framed in that way just to just to show like things are always constantly moving and sort of like the journey's never never completely over so so to no. speak no massively i mean it's such an in, in, inherent theme in in up to pretty much up to this point all of vendors movies is the is, is movement is the journey um and how we utilize is that is so significant to the core of the film because i mean it's an emotional journey it's a physical journey it's it's all of these things and it's it's emphasized in so many ways some directly i mean through the movement of travis when we first see him he's just you know the he's just moving just it has to, he's almost like a robot just has to get somewhere we don't know where but he just has to keep on moving and and from that point, I mean, from the very first, because the, the camera is moving, as the as we open up after the, the introduction, after the opening credits, the camera is moving across the landscape. Everything is moving, pretty much like you said, constant, constant movement in subtle ways, in not so yep. subtle ways. It's one of the beautiful things that makes this two and a half hour film not feel like two and a half hour film. Um, that, that's one thing motion. I will say about this film. It's it zips by. Like when a film has a, a runtime of like say two and a half hours, three hours, but it just flies by. You know, you know, you're onto something great. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paris, Texas is is no exception. So I first watched this film probably about a year ago. So I'm quite late to the party on this one. Um, you're never but, late. You're never late to the party when it comes. Well, yeah. To I mean, you only just watched yours, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, so I watched it um, at the recommendation of a, of a good friend of mine, uh, Elliot Cohen, if he's listening. Hi, Elliot. And he, um, yeah, it's his one of his top, like, three films of all time. And I was like, it's been on my radar for a long time as, like, a cinephile. And I eventually picked it up and I watched it. And, it's yeah, it's one of those films, like, after I watched it, it was in my mind for ages afterwards. And it's, it's a funny thing because the, the film is very moving. And particularly the, the scenes in the third act are very, very moving. And I, it was weird because I didn't shed a tear until after the film had finished. 
which is very wow. very strange yeah I, it was more of like a, a all of everything that had happened catching up to me and then and then it, and then i i was very upset <laughs> uh on the first viewing of this film it was very strange a, a film's never like made me cry or get emotional after the fact after i've like finished watching it i it was probably about half an hour after i finished it and i was just reflecting on what i'd watched and then i was like my god that was just amazing like in in probably the top um, 20 films i've ever seen in my life i absolutely adore it and i was so happy that um like you agreed to do this podcast with me so i had an excuse to watch it because i have so many films on my shelf that haven't been opened up and watched yet <laughs> yeah yep, I've, 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 yeah I, but yeah i've got i've got a film here that i've only seen say like 12 months ago yeah i'm re-watching it but it's because it's such a masterpiece and i i, I mean sometimes you get films like that and they just they just click they can sure. just click and you can just you know sometimes i've had movies where I've, I've watched them for the first time and then i have to watch it again the day after and then i've watched oh, yep. it again the day after that um yeah just because you just that. you know you just have to like kind that. of get into you got to get you it into as much as you can you do yeah i had an experience like that recently with um tarkovsky's mirror have you seen uh, that i haven't but um i'm waiting you... for the criterion editions yeah. coming out yeah i've i've uh, i've uh, yeah i've ordered that and so i'm very uh eagerly anticipating that arriving cause it's like a new 2k restoration of it and there's like it's like a two disc edition so there's going to be like a, a plethora of like special features and stuff and yeah. uh yeah that's one film that i watched and then i watched it the next day and um yeah it's a contender for my favorite film of all time now um but yeah if there's films that i've watched that i've not in i've i've like there's something about it that i've enjoyed but i've never gone like oh that wasn't amazing um for instance my favorite film ever is i've, I've spoke about this on a podcast quite a number of times but it's mulholland drive by david lynch is my favorite film ever and that's a film on the first time I watched it. I, I didn't like it that much, to be honest. But there was something about the way it was put together and just the, the ambiguity and stuff that made me want to revisit it. And even on the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, I liked it a bit more this time. But still, something didn't land to make it like the masterpiece that a lot of people regard yeah. it as, like one of the greatest films of the 21st century. And then it was like on the third viewing something clicked and ever since i watched it on that time i've probably seen about 10 times now and yeah it's my favorite film ever i could talk about it for about 10 hours on a podcast but yeah i think there's just i love it when films come along like that basically what is what the They're point of that was <laughs> yeah, no 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 they, i mean they are rare they don't come along very often and when you do i mean i think that's kind of like part of the the drug of of being a, a film lover is that you want to maybe discover something that gives you that feeling of being of, mm. of of being so immersed in what's going on in, in front of you that you just want to continue to do that and uh i think it's it's a rare kind of feeling to have and a rare discovery so when you get it ooh, it's always a good feeling yeah it's amazing so again like we was talking about a taxi driver as a musician mm -hmm. i'd be interested yeah. to hear your thoughts on the impeccable guitar score by raikuda yeah um Again, one of my favorite soundtracks of all time, mm -hmm. um, purely because it deftly weaves its way in and out of the emotional core of this film with, without giving too much away. I mean, anybody who's seen Paris, Texas knows that it's not a heavy dialogue driven film. So 
along with the movement, you've got the twang. You've got this southern, rustic, very Americana bass. We're not talking full band stuff. I mean, there are some, there are some, um, you know, slight um, Spanish Mexican influences there. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, south southwestern kind of, you know, lilts, but the motifs from the very opening from the credits that 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 guitar pulls you in and does not let you go until the very end if it, 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 it's literally a thread of its own through the film i mean it, it's a narrative weave you know working in tandem with with the visuals with the i mean it's it's probably one of my favorite combinations of of, of music and, and imagery uh, together in one film because they just seem seamless to me. Sometimes you get scores that just kind of really ramp up and pull down, ramp up, pull down, really put effort in. Where this is so laconic and so laid back, much like Travis, in a way. Um, yeah, for sure. That it that it almost is his personal kind of sonic landscape that he exists in it's almost as if it's his theme it these these you know this music the score is his 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 as he's walking around as he's moving and um it, it blows my mind that it was it's such a very big it, it, it's so it's so minimal it blows my mind i mean Ry Cooder is is a legend anyway his guitar playing is is, is fantastic yep. his musicianship i mean he's i think he even worked on the score with jim dickinson who I'd worked with uh, a lot of in Tennessee, a lot of Memphis uh, bands like um, uh, Big Star and things like that. So he's, you know, there's a relationship there. There's definite nuance and performance which really works superbly at accompanying the visual landscape of Vendor's opus. Yeah, opus. <laughs> Can you even throw an opus around? I mean, everybody, I mean, I think it's pretty, I mean, for me, this is, I mean, after this, I think there are very, you know, very few films that could work the road movie in such a way that would, that would make the dynamic work in, in such perfect tandem with narrative, visual and musicality. Very well said. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. I have it on vinyl. I have it on vinyl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think I think that's uh, unless there's anything else you want to say about Paris, Texas, we can move on to a little bit of a little bit of trivia about Paris, Texas. You might know a lot more about this film than what I would. If you have any tidbits about it, I mean. I think it's very much a personal experience. I think for me, it's a film that I've revisited time and time again, and I find the the nuances. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's very difficult because I find it. I find that the the core elements of Harry Dean Stanton's kind of drive and desire throughout the film to be so wonderfully innocent and redemptive and and just generally heartfelt that it's 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 a heartbreaking movie it is just a heartbreaking movie i highly recommend if you're listening to this if you've not seen it not seen it spend two and a half hours with what could possibly be uh, a film that changes your life excellent 
So, a little bit of trivia. We did allude to this uh, right yeah. at the beginning of the episode uh, with um, me uh, sort of championing, championing, I can't say that word. Championing. <laughs> championing. There you go. Thanks for getting that out for me. Um, Beau Travail by Claire Denis. Claire Denis was actually the assistant director for this film, which I mm-hmm. found, found absolutely amazing um and yeah uh that's the only bit of trivia that i could really come up with but i thought that was no, really I mean, interesting because she's come on to have such a fantastic career of her own so i mean you've also got the fact i mean people i mean might not be totally aware i mean i guess people who know the film would be that sam shepherd um the actor and the playwright yeah. responsible for um the, the the main kind of story which is lifted which is used for um paris texas is quite a considerable kind of filmography in his own right and a very well established um actor and artist uh, and is in himself and i mean obviously he's also in my second favorite film uh which is days of heaven by terence malick um <laughs> great, great film oh my god what a, what a so, film so yeah, and it's um, yeah, I always love the fact. I mean, I, I've I'm, I'm a big Sam Shepard fan, and mm. his his short stories and stuff and things like that. His 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 liter- you know literary work as well is 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 worth digging into. Yeah, like. I've never I've never I've never uh, read any of his uh, his work outside of his script writing for films and stuff. So yeah, would you recommend anything in particular for myself um, or any of the list- listeners to? Um, there's a group of short eat. stories that I can't remember off the top of my head what the title is, but there's a group of short stories which I'll have to um, look up. My books are currently boxed up in the next room, but um, that I picked up from a secondhand bookshop um, while out on tour when I found it, and it's it's just really nice to kind of see a, a person, a, a, an act, somebody you know from one aspect of um, entertainment have. Uh, a different outlet um, that you can also dig into. So um, anything, pretty much, I, I recommend checking out. Even like his 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 plays and stuff, if you can find them, um, are worth hunting down to check it out. And obviously, just his other films. I mean, he's in such he's in a, quite a few fantastic films as well. Um, probably uh, one of my and one of my kind of like rogue favorites is probably. Um, a late Pakula film um, called Pelican Brief. Um, oh, yeah. But, um, I'm, uh, you know, so there we go. Sam Shepard. Go check out his, uh, his work. Awesome. Right, then. Uh, let's, just have a, let's just have a brief uh, sort of discussion about why this may or may not uh, be a, like a pretty good double okay. feature. I mean, you'd be sat there. You might be sat there for quite a number of hours to get through both of these, but you could watch them over over consecutive nights or what what if you're off at the weekend you could watch one on saturday morning and then one on saturday evening if you like but why uh why do you think that this or what themes and motifs run through each film or the styles of filmmaking would make this a really good pairing map um well when you first posited that question i thought i honestly could not mm-hmm. think of a reason why i would put them together <laughs> um I found them in my head at least the the idea of such a an uh, a almost like a dark nihilistic movie like 
taxi driver where you've got the themes of isolation of mental illness of of big of bigotry of repressed sexuality mm-hmm. um there how it would work with a road movie like Paris Texas and it is a road movie i mean yeah for sure t- t- taxi driver in obviously yeah new york city de niro travis driving the cab around seeing experience all the experiences that he has and i i i found it a bit of a challenge to find a connection between the two that i would suggest and that's me being completely honest no that's fine um, no that's fine um so i'll, I'll i just found it more. a difficult watch i mean i just found i just i think they're too different a film for me to to suggest putting them together i think apart from a couple apart from of both of the characters being called travis <laughs> yeah oh, no no i mean that, that obviously the simple simplest distillation of it but i mean yes there's a lot of movement there's a constant movement but it's it, it isn't it's such a limited scope of movement in 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 taxi driver where the characters move from where you know the character motivations going from point a to point b to c is so constrained by the city where paris texas is such a wide vista i mean it's it's almost like a western versus a a noir um yeah Yeah. can you not see uh, can you not see how um the differences would make these film a good pairing yeah yes does, does that make sense does that make sense yeah yeah i think the... being as opposed to being like um the same film but told slightly differently be different no yeah i mean yeah. i think i think in terms of looking at the journey um of the character both travis's have a journey to make um whether or not the willing participants, so to speak, in that journey, or whether it's not something that society or the social, for Travis Bickle, the, what society has, has done to him, what mm-hmm. his time in the army has done to him, um, has affected how he is, where versus Travis Henderson in Paris, Texas, who is a completely laid back individual who is tied into this notion of of who he is based on a running joke that his dad used to make about where his mother was from. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's the, you know, and, and then that, that how that builds him into a character then, which then falls in love with a person like Jane. And then his whole world kind of unravels due to the, the, the kind of the interplay between uh, his history kind of repeating itself, the history of his of his family repeating itself, that kind of inability to to take what you've got and and, and love it. It's just I found it a little bit difficult, but I do think the differences can be maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate, maybe I appreciate. not for me. Maybe not yeah, for me. I yep. personally I probably wouldn't watch them as a pairing. Um, strangely enough, I was thinking as I was watching, I could, after watching Taxi Driver, I was like, oh, I'm going to throw on another Freda now. <laughs> because it got, it got, it got me in the mood to watch, um, to watch Hardcore. 
<laughs> oh yeah, what a film! Again, um, which is another journey, um, a, a very um, a completely different journey, um, but with similar themes. I mean, it's very um, uh, a similar redemptive quality to to Travis, so so called, um, towards the end of Taxi Driver. So for me. I was left more wanting to pursue a different film after Taxi Driver than, say, reaching for Paris, Texas. And after Paris, Texas, I was left wanting to watch a different film. What uh, what what would you pair with Paris, Texas in its in Taxi Driver's place? Um, if you can think of anything off the top of your head now. Yeah, do you know what I was thinking? I was there was a couple of films that really resonated with me that I really wanted to watch. One was Badlands by Terence Malick for some okay, reason. Okay, yeah, yeah. In my mind that I really wanted to watch after watching it. I think because of the visual aspect of the film, I really wanted to see something rich and and visual. And, I, and it's it's another kind of road movie, a bit more of a challenging one. But um, and then Three Colors Blue, uh, Three Colors Blue by Kizowski. Oh, very good. Um, because the emotional impact that the end of Paris, Texas had on me, I was just thinking, do you know what? I really, it just brought back that watching blue for the first time and how, what a powerhouse performance it is watching, um, Benoche just go through that rev, that, that grief, that loss, um, that yeah. trying to find a way through something, which is what Travis is trying to do, trying to come to terms with, um, the past, and trying to work out you work your way through that to a new discovery of, of, of who you are and who the person is that you were obsessing about um those you know those films came to mind and by watching taxi driver obviously apart from hardcore i was watching another film um quite recently which i thought would have been cool is um uh, walking the edge <laughs> oh yeah awesome um which i don't know if anybody out there's a big robert forster fan but um it's a very very underrated um kind of neo vigilante noir kind of action kind of drama film from late period kind of forster he plays a taxi driver mm-hmm. um uh who ends up in a predicament which is uh, quite violent and also features Joe Spinell from um, who's also in in Taxi Driver as well. Oh yeah, he has that um, brief performance. He has the role at the start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I was quite blown away by that because when I saw when I put Taxi Driver in again, I was like, oh my god, Spinell, he's in like he's in like so many so many. Movies. Yeah, I actually <laughs> I've watched. watched um, I actually watched um, Maniac for the first time a few months ago. So uh, yeah, um, and, and this. He's a great character actor, and um, for sure, for sure. And yeah, so for me, Taxi Driver in Paris, Texas didn't work, and I kept on thinking of other films that I would like to have put on after the fact. But I mean, I think the intensity levels of both films are just too in two opposed opposite directions for them to work satisfying for me as a double bill. I appreciate that. Uh... Yes, no, no, that's great. Um, I, I, I agree with uh, a lot of what you're saying. I'm kind of a big fan of like polar opposites and extremes, <laughs> both both in like my music tastes and my film tastes and things like that. So I, I saw 
as I as I previously mentioned, the differences between the films as being something that makes it a good pairing because you get the contrasts in in the in this the tone and the style of filmmaking. But I do feel that even though Taxi Driver is very much rooted in one location, it's there is a metaphor of traveling and constantly being on the move as being as like a metaphor for like the internal struggle and wanting to come through on the other side and the I mean, the, the, lon- the loneliness of it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that. I mean, obviously, you've got the uh, insomnia that uh, both Travis's um, suffer from until much later in the film for Travis in Paris, Texas, where as he's coming to terms, coming back to the life that he had um, before he left, um, he starts to become a a lot more comfortable in the situation. yeah, there are elements there that, that are significant enough for I think that you could put them together. But for me personally, um, it just two different coins. No worries. <laughs> A, uh, an interesting experiment, shall we say? <laughs> no, I mean, def- I mean, it was, it was, um, I loved rediscovering Taxi Driver. Um, and that's a film that I'd written off weirdly i mean of all the films to write off i you know i found it such a difficult watch the first time that coming back to it was was very eye-opening and i mean there are still gaps in my in the films that i've seen by scorsese that i really want to um to fill now mm-hmm. after seeing taxi driver again um but i could watch like paris texas I mean, I watched it last time, probably about three years ago. But I mean, I've watched it on and off, pretty much once, once a year, once maybe twice a year, on average. Probably one of my yeah. m- probably my most watched movie, <laughs> along with Halloween. <laughs> Weirdly, um, you watch that obviously every uh, October. Every Halloween. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, for me, I'm 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 a, a person that loves things that are um, the significant that um give me an emotional connection and um halloween was the first um film i was terrified of horror movies when i grew up so halloween was the first movie when i was um able to when i was 18 when i was uh, the first thing i did when i turned 18 was walk walk my way down to blockbusters in my hometown Mm -hmm. and had an account and rented halloween um because I, I was I hated horror movies. Um, one of the reasons why it didn't took me so long to watch Jaws is they have um, those kind of things leave leave a, a mark on me. So um, I was determined to um, to confront um, some demons <laughs> when I turned eighteen to <laughs> to re- readdress the balance of, of specific movies. But um, yeah, Paris, Texas is just is immeasurable how much that movie has become quite you know like i said a comfort blanket whenever i feel a particular you know in a particular mood just throw it on and i'm instantly transported to this this natural dynamic and uh it always really seems to hit the spot awesome um yeah it's also worth noting that uh, both taxi driver and Paris, Texas won the Palm Door in the in yeah. the years that they were coming, which is pretty cool. Uh, that's something I, I I knew they both 
had won the Palm d'Or, but I completely, it completely escaped me until uh, this morning when I was just doing a little bit of research before before recording. So that was pretty cool to discover. So um, yeah, so um, just uh, just to wrap up things, thanks for coming on to the the show, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. I did, yeah, man. I, I, like I said before we um, before we kicked off, I don't. This is the first time anybody's ever asked me to participate in something other than talking about um, music or funeral for a friend or anything. So it was it's it's been nice chatting about um, about uh, you know something that I I genuinely genuinely adore. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm I don't consider myself a significant. Um, um, doctor on the subject of, of, of film but um well it's something that when you're passionate about i think you can just whether or not what you say is is fully there i mean yeah i know yeah you love it exactly so um is there any sort of um projects or anything to do with your band that you want to sort of uh, plug right now uh, um i mean at the moment we're still kind of um Obviously, with all the the COVID, um, the global pandemic situation, um, the 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 tour that we had planned got pushed back to January next year. Um, but we are um, at the moment. That's pretty much it. We got um, a headline tour. We're not fully back in the saddle, but um, mm-hmm. we we played some benefit shows. Um, I think at the end of twenty nineteen. God, that feels so long ago to say now. Uh, it's been that long since since yep. all this kicked off. Jeez. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. That um, there were so many people that couldn't get to see us play that um, we decided to maybe play a couple more shows, which then worked its way out into a tour, which mm-hmm. was going to happen um, this year. I think last year even, <laughs> but it's now happening in uh, early part of 2022. And we'll be playing Download Festival, fingers crossed, next year. And um, we've just been announced to play um, at Slam Dunk in um, Leeds and London in September. Fingers crossed if that goes ahead. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of everything that's going on. I mean, I'm, you know, working, doing stuff, mm-hmm. watching films, yep. looking after animals. Awesome. Boom. Sounds good. So uh, if any listeners want to get in contact with this show, you can email us uh, letswatch2 at gmail.com. And uh, you can also follow uh, the podcast on uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter also at letswatch2. So, yeah. um, So once again, thanks, Matt, for coming on to the show. And uh, until next time, everybody, take care. (laughs) 